the optimal life. Susan, welcome. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing, Nate? I am doing great. I am do. I really wanted to put some pancakes on the screen, but I didn't have <laughs> enough time right now. That's okay. Pour some syrup over top. Get get become part of the pancakes for Roger hashtag. Oh, okay. We'll get into that kind of stuff. Um, one of the things that really caught my eye from you too, Susan, was that you started an insurance business. Yeah. Talk about how in the world that came about. Yeah, you know, I I I came to New York um, in 2001, and I ended up going to work for Paychex, the payroll company. And um, how I got into insurance is they came out with a workers' comp product um, that nobody knew how to do anything with. And so I learned about it, started teaching other offices, other reps. And um, and then I got kind of become the workers' comp girl. So I would go in for those meetings. People would ask about other insurances. And eventually the light bulb went off over my head saying, you know what? Like these people that are in insurance, like they're not starting at zero every single day. And um, so let me let me see if I should explore this further. So I went to work for a large brokerage firm, um, was with them for about a year. And then at 26, I started my own firm, uh, which, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think that was probably my saving grace. A lot of times when people start businesses, they they, they do all right. Um, but then, you know, maybe they have like capital that's been infused or things like that. But I, I didn't. Um, but I own my book of business from day one when I worked for the other brokerage. And so when I left, all my clients left with me. I was taking everything and making twice as much money as I was. And um, because I was no longer splitting with the house. So the main thing with the insurance is I knew how to treat people. And my background was hospitality. And that's kind of just how I rolled with it. And, you know, it's over 17 years later and we're still kicking. So it's pretty good too. What's the best way to get clients? Uh, you know, I think for me, um, when it comes to clients, I mean, all of our stuff is word of mouth. Um, now I, I networked a lot and I always tell people like, even in any type of sales capacity, if you bust your ass for three years, um, make the right connections, network a bunch. Um, then after three years, the phone will just start ringing. And that's kind of what it, it did for me. Um, I really think that in insurance, if you can develop a niche market, things that you're known for. So, you know, the niche markets I'm known for, I, I do a lot of entertainment work, a lot of food products. Um, so those are kind of my hospitality backgrounds put in together. And then I do a lot of international companies opening up their first U.S. location. Um, but that's all that stuff is kind of parlayed into expert witnessing. Um, so that's a lot of what I do. Started doing the expert witnessing thing in, in 2015. And we do a lot of consulting too. So I think with me, we've just always been open. Um, so when somebody's asked about things or we look at different products or different opportunities, since I've remained open, it's kind of allowed us to pivot into different, you know, different areas that I never anticipated. Sure. So when you are, are fostering these relationships and you're building on it, and it takes time. It's not a one thing. It's not a transactional kind of relationship or situation. What do you find is a, what's the best tip or tactic for these young people that are breaking into the insurance industry or any sales mm -hmm. industry? Is it well, go for the hard sale right away or or is does it not even have to be business at the beginning? Well, I think, you know, a lot of times you need to build social capital um, because, you know, if you go in there and you're just, you know, doing your dog and pony show and everything like that, I, and they don't like you, they're never going to buy from you. And so I always say it's important to like, take the time to kind of do the, the fact finding, look around somebody's office. You know, if they have pictures of their family around, it's going to be the family they like. So ask them about that. I mean, if you're like, I'm a sports person, so 
you know, I'll ask about if their kids are playing sports or different things like that to just kind of build that, um, build that morale. Um, but I also tell people a lot of times that understand that what you're sitting across from the person, they need you more than, than you need them. And I know that that might sound kind of arrogant, but it's not, they're coming to you because you're an expert in the industry and you know what you're talking about and you know more about the situation than they do. So once you kind of shift that confidence in yourself and realize that, Hey, you know what, there's always another client around the corner, but you know, there's only one you that come to your, you know, with your expertise. So I always tell people when they can kind of shift that, then the confidence really shines through. And then when they're sitting down in front of a prospect and they, they tend to not get as nervous. So that's one of the things that I try to tell people when I'm mentoring them all the time in any type of sales for that matter. Yes. For example, back to the the family pictures in the office, they're sitting there, they're feeling more comfortable. So now instead of just saying you have a beautiful family, maybe they say, hey, that's a beautiful family. Have you thought about what life would look like for that family if you're not around? If you're selling a life insurance product, right? Like there's ways to tie it in once you have a little bit more of that camaraderie and confidence. But but at the beginning, as I'm sure you're mentoring, Susan, the beginning, a lot of times you don't, these people might just be going in and they're just trying to, nobody wants to just be hard sold, right? Because it's turning people off. They're like, ah, maybe I don't really need this insurance product. Instead of showing them why they need it, they feel like they're being pushed into something. Yeah. And I always, like when I talk to people, I always say, you know, like, give me a description of operations of your company. Act like you're talking to your five-year-old nephew you know, no jargon, no acronyms, give it to me in simple language, because then I have to sell it to insurance carriers. And so I always say like, look, paint me a picture. And then what we'll do is we'll look at contracts that they have to satisfy. And we say, okay, like in a perfect world, if this was my business and I wanted to sleep well at night, these are the things we'd look to implement. But then we have to take real world experience. We have to take budget in mind and we have to take a look at the contracts because a lot of times when, I mean, on the property and casualty side, so that's the business insurance, the liability, the errors and mission, things of that nature. A lot of times people get contracts and they just sign them and they, then they come and say like, oh, they're asking for $25 million in cyber liability, but your annual sales are say 200,000. You can't even get 25 million in liability, you know, cyber liability if you wanted to. I mean, that's usually reserved for more five fortune a thousand companies type of thing. So we always tell them like, look, let's look at those contracts. And there's always ways you can negotiate out. I mean, a lot of times you'll get people that ask for automobile coverage, but if you're not driving on site to those clients, what's the exposure? But a lot of times what happens is somebody has insurance in place and they say, well, anybody we work with should have the same type of insurance as in place. And they don't, you know, take a look and say like, oh, that really doesn't apply here. So we mm. try them understand that stuff and understand like, hey, just because they're asking for it doesn't mean that they won't negotiate with you. I mean, if they're, you know, kind of the rule of thumb on property and casualty side is nobody should ask you for 10 times of the value of the contract. So, you know, we get- What's the standard, uh, Susan? What's the standard ask? Um, so a lot of times, I mean, usually like on general liability or errors and emission, it's a million dollars per occurrence to million aggregate. Um, so that means you basically can get sued for a million dollars twice um, in, in policy year. Um, but we'll see asks that are like $10 million, $20 million, and the contract may be valued at 50 grand. So, you know, a lot of times if you push back on it and say like, look, you know, I have a million dollars worth of coverage. I'm trying to understand why you're asking me for such high limits when the liability just doesn't fit. So a lot of times if you just ask, you'll get it. But if you don't ask, you're never going to get it. Mm. 
And I see there you've got your Queens, New York pillow in the background. So we can only imagine, assume that you're in Queens. Yes. Well, I work from home on a couple of days a week. And so you got me in a work. <laughs> my so, my guest bedroom slash office. So you might see my dog jump up there here in a little bit. That'd be great. That'd be great. So, <laughs> so how many, do you have agents scattered all throughout the country or are you just focused in the state of New York? Um, so we're licensed and I believe it's like 39 states now. Okay. Um, we do have, you know, where I have my staff in New York City, of course, and then um, we do have what we call sub-producers, so salespeople across the country. I believe we're at like 12 salespeople across the country, and so it might be somebody that's licensed in insurance, and they just want us to be maybe their health insurance arm, or you might have somebody that's a life and, and health insurance person that wants us to be the property and casualty insurance arm, so we'll kind of fit in however we need to fit in. Mm. You, you've uh, one of the guys who I actually follow, and I have a lot of admiration and respect for. Patrick Bet David. You know who that is? No, I don't. I'm sorry. You don't. Okay. He started PHP Agency. Okay. And they've got I don't know twenty, thirty thousand uh, insurance agents across the uh, across the country. I think it's more on the life side of things. Gotcha. Um, but uh, yeah, he he's he talk. He's got a big uh, presence on. YouTube with Valuetainment and his insurance agency and got a big social media presence. Um, he talks a lot about the upside for young people coming into the business. Obviously, a lot of people will fizzle out, but talk about what, what the potential is for, for people if they're good, if they're hungry, if they're hardworking, if they have interpersonal skills and the ability to connect, what can the an annual salary or, or commission look like? You know, I think... I think this industry is excellent industry. I mean, you know, I got into it very, very young and, you know, I think there's no, there's no ceiling on what you can make. And that's kind of the beauty of it. And, you know, when it comes to women, a lot of times you hear with women in different professions, they might make 70 cents on the dollar to a man, but in this commissions commissions. So which I make just as much as the guys make. Um, and you can always negotiate things. I mean, you know, you mentioned the person that does life insurance and disability insurance. I mean, we, that's probably one or two percent of our revenue. So we don't we don't really play in that so much. We have a you know a partner that that is their bread and butter, and so we we refer that type of stuff out. Um, but I think when it comes to this industry, if you like to educate people, if you like to collaborate, if you like to work from a, a team approach, I think this is a fantastic industry for you. So you know we get a lot of people that are say career changers. You might have somebody that was a teacher. And they put in their 20 years, they have a pension and they're just, they're not done yet. I mean, if you became a teacher in your early twenties and you're, you know, probably you're in my age now, it's, you know, you're just entering your prime at that point. Exactly. So if you want to keep teaching, you keep teaching, or you might be able to pivot into a different industry. But but the upside potential, I know you say the sky's the limit. There's no limit. Of course there's not, but there's people, according to him at his firm, there's people making a good half a million to a million a year. Now I know you're talking about top producers, and maybe in New York City, it's even more because of where you're based. But yeah. there's people that are pulling in those kind of numbers, correct? Yeah. And I, I always tell people like, um, you know, that come into the industry, I mean, in New York or, or wherever, if they really set up their network and bust their ass for three years, they can be making six figures easy in three years. Um, because the thing is, like with insurance business, for the most part, it's an annuity. So as long as you keep your clients happy, you're going to add on new clients every single month. So your salaries or your income is going to go up every single month. And as long as you keep people happy, they're going to renew their policies. And chances are the insurance rates go up each year. So that means that your income goes up as well. And they're going to tell their friends and family, hey, my guy's been great. My girl's been great. You should talk to this person. Absolutely. You should talk to her. She's taking great care of me. So now you've got 
like you said before, word of mouth is really the most powerful tool. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, it's very fascinating. Very interesting business. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And you did mention that women in, in this business, I'm, I assume it's still more dominated by men. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's only about 14% women on the production side. So, uh, you know, and I think that it's, it's like a, an opportunity that a lot of people just don't consider. I think sometimes people think like, oh, it's, you know, I'm like glorified used car salesman. No, you're a trusted advisor. So mm. a lot of you collaborate with attorneys, with, with CPAs to make sure that the clients are in the, you know, have the best program possible. You know, we do a lot of employee benefits. So we work with a lot of employees and that's where we get a lot of our referrals because it's just like, we might, you know, do the employee benefits for a company and we work hand in hand and interface a lot with the employees. So the employees call us directly. If they say they say they're diagnosed with cancer and they want to see if Sloan Kettering is in network, um, say um, they're having a baby. I mean, we're sometimes we know that stuff before the, the bosses know. And then a lot of times what happens is they remember that we've given them the extra TLC. And then when they think about starting their own business, they bring us in or maybe they land at a different company. And when the company says like, hey, you know, here's your benefits, you know, call the carrier if you need something. And they say, well, can I call the broker? And they're not used to that kind of connection. They're saying, no, we only deal with the broker. And they're like, well, my last firm, the employees could deal with the broker and ask those intimate questions that maybe they're not ready to share with their employers too. One follow-up question too on the compensation stuff. When an agent closes on a, a, a new contract for a client, how does the payment work? Does the insurance per company send that directly to you and then you disperse it to the, the employee or the independent contractor, however you're structured? How does that all work? Yeah, it just depends. I mean, oftentimes, yes. Like we're getting... Um, we're getting commission dollars from the insurance carrier. So basically the um, the commissions are built into the premiums. So, you know, a lot of times, especially with our international clients, they'll ask, they're like, well, what is your fee? And we say, well, our fee is actually built into the insurance price and we get paid by the carrier. A lot of times in Europe, they're paying additional fees to have somebody broker the deal and, and look at, you know, different um, structures for the, for the business. So oftentimes we do get paid directly by the carrier. And then if we have a sub producer on it, then we'll disseminate the, um, their commissions, whether they're employer 1099, and then we provide them with a commission statement and show the percentage that they're, they're making on each deal too. And, and is it a standard commission? I, I think I, in the life insurance, it's like a hundred percent or 110% Not in the first it, year. It depends. So like in New York, it can't be any more than 50% on life insurance, but yeah, I have friends all across the country that are making a hundred percent um, on those big deals. And it's, it's New York is like the hardest state to be licensed in. So, so when you say a hundred percent, just for people that don't understand or 50, whatever the number is, if somebody's paying a thousand dollars on an annual policy, could be a life, uh, a term policy. Mm -hmm. You're saying if it's 50% in New York, the, the agent gets $500 on his commission or her. So it depends. And it also changes. So like each agent can do kind of some different structures. So if they do the 50%, maybe it's a one-time deal. So it's just like you get 50% of that premium year one, then maybe year two, you're getting 5%. So year two, three, year five, you're getting 5%. And then in perpetuity, like after say year six, you might only get 1% or half a percent. Okay. So sometimes some carry or some 
brokers or agents decide to load that commission earlier, or they might try to like disseminate it out so that they are getting a little bit more in later years, but they're not getting as much up front. When it comes to health insurance, it's pretty much just a flat percentage, or it could be a per employee per month type of structure. Every state's different on that, and, and each carrier can be different. So in the state of New York on the health insurance, um, typically like we can't, we don't get more than 4% of what the client is paying on their, their monthly bill. Um, but it can be anywhere from two and a half percent to 4% is usually how it's structured. Um, prior to the ACA and other states, they used to get much higher commissions on the health insurance. New York, we've always been kind of at a lower point. Um, so when the ACA came around, like in New York, we pretty much, we remained flat um, on, on that where you had some other states that people were grumbling because they were used to getting say 20% of commission and then they were getting cut to 8%. Mm. So why there was a kind of a big change in there. And then when it comes to the property and casualty side, that can vary too. I mean, it can vary from 8% to maybe 20% at the high end. I mean, it really depends on the volume that the, the brokerage firm or the agency is putting through that carrier because then that can, that can change um, the percentages that they get. Fascinating. So the, as the, as the president, clearly not one size fits all. No. <laughs> as the president of Combs and Company, am I saying your last name correct? Yes, you are. Okay. As the president of your company, where do you find you bring yourself bringing the most value? What's keeping you the busiest these days on a, on a daily or weekly basis? Um, so, you know, for me, I mean, I've had the, the firm 17 years now. So typically what I interface with, I handle um, all the expert witnessing consulting. Um, let me just ask you, let me stop you real, real quick, Susan. <laughs> when you say expert witnessing consulting, they're hiring you as an expert witness or one of your agents potentially as an expert witness to be an expert in what, for example? So I have the certification of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. So I'm an expert on the Affordable Care Act. Um, and so I have a my certification. It, it was about 100 hours. Um, it was 10 different classes, proctored modules and exams on for 10 different sections it was pretty extensive and so um you know i got that certification and then a law firm actually approached approached the association that i got the certification through and said hey we're looking at using this argument on some of our our, our lawsuits who would you recommend and i was the person that was recommended so it's just kind of shifted from there so i get brought in on typically like high-end medical malpractice cases um, real high-end trip and falls, workers' comp, construction litigation. So basically on the health insurance side, though. So, for example, if somebody's injured, they put together what's called a life care plan. So a life care plan shows what, what doctors, what, what equipment, what surgeries, home renovation, somebody's going to need from now until life expectancy. So then I come in, treat the plaintiff like I would treat a client, find an insurance policy that will give them the greatest access to care and the least amount out of pocket, and then run that plan through the insurance policy and tell them what will be covered or not covered. So for example, if somebody's asking for say $52 million and I run it through insurance and maybe I get it down to say 17 million type of thing. And then they bring in an economist that puts the numbers into present value. And then a lot of times there's a structured settlement person that only notifies the settlement. So I'm really a strategist. So I kind of think outside the box and look at things a little bit differently um, because I'm also not so close and integrated to the cases like a lot of the attorneys are. Mm -hmm. uh, so we kind of look at doing some different things. So that's, you know, that is like how my calendar is set up. I have two hour blocks every single day that are dedicated to expert witness work. Um, and then Let me ask you again too, Susan, when you say you treat the plaintiff like the client, are you always 
on the side. So are you, do you go back and forth depending on who's hiring you? Are you sometimes on the plaintiff, the witness for the plaintiff, or are you sometimes the witness for the defense or how does that work? So I, I can do both um, because, but my reports are going to be exactly the same if I'm working for the defense or working for plaintiff because my stuff's black and white. It's how the insurance care, you know, contracts translated. Um, so, but oftentimes I'm hired by hospital systems. Um, so uh, that's, I would say the litigation work, probably 80% are um, medical malpractice claims. So I'm working for doctors or hospital systems um, where they're, you know, looking at. Uh, you're, you're basically coming in and saying, okay, they want 50 million, but it's really going to only cost them 17 or whatever, it, it, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, it's, you know, it's not saying that that plaintiff doesn't deserve $52 million. It's just saying use financial models that are available to get you exactly what you're asking right you're you're bringing in the facts yeah exactly yeah, yeah. so okay so know, that's that's a big part of your deal but go ahead i interrupted you no you're yeah. fine so that's that's approximately you know anywhere from 10 to 15 hours a week but then you know i run a business so i'm overseeing you know kind of the operations i also get brought in on kind of complicated um high-end medical or excuse me on property and casualty risk so um my husband tends to call me a dream stasher I can't help but somebody start telling me about a business and I just see the risk. You know, I had somebody that approached me today that um, was a previous client for me that they shut down their operation a few years ago. And then now they're looking at opening a cooking school and they're going to be dealing with children and knives. And I'm like, oh, God, it's <laughs> like, <laughs> like knives. Hey, again. I got to tell like, you what, dream, dream snatchers have <laughs> saved people a lot of money and heartache. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, but yeah, so I get brought in, um, you know, like we have a client, there's my dog. There he is. <laughs> That's Roxy. Um, oh, there she is. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but I get brought in on like, for example, like we have a client that is like a, a, a robot that, um, that charges electric vehicles. So like buses and, and cars, typically more public transportation type of things. Um, so that was like interesting. And so then I basically have to sell it to the insurance carriers. So I go out. We, so that's the difference between a, a broker and an agent. An agent technically like represents the carrier. A broker represents the client. So at the end of the day, I don't care what carrier the client goes with. It's what's going to be the best thing for them. Hmm. So, you know, we go out, we put like layman's description of operation, their estimated sales. And then we say like, okay, this is the risk. This is where we see the pitfalls, like, and so they'll come back and it's like back and forth to just kind of determine what's going to be the best for the client and where the risk lies. And then we'll come back to the client and present the options. Sometimes there's 20 different options. And to me, I think that does a disservice to the client to say, hey, 20 options, figure it out. Um, but we try to present the best, most viable options and say, okay, you know, look, we have two, two options that are it's exactly the same coverage. It's just a different carrier, both A-rated carriers. At the end of the day, you're going to pay five grand more for this one than the cheaper one. Go with the cheaper one because there's no there's no reason not to type of thing. So you mentioned some of the things you're doing on the day-to-day -day, weekly basis as a value add and, and where you find yourself consumed. Let me say on the flip side, being the president of this company, you have a lot of employees, a lot of responsibilities. Where, where do you find some of your pain points these days? What's what's keeping you up at night? Um, you know, I think with where we're at, I mean, it's just, I think looking at not trying to miss an opportunity, I guess is what, what I'm trying to say. So it's just like, there's, there's things that change all the time. And so there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of different carriers. There's a lot of different vendors. And so trying to understand like, okay, what are, 
the things to spend our time on to bring to our clients to see what's going to be the best thing for them. Because at the end of the day, if it's just noise and I mean, like looking at different ben, you know, benefit admin portals, looking at different, um, you know, ancillary carriers, dental carriers, vision carriers, like what at the end of the day, what's going to be the best thing. And there's so many. So that's like one of the hardest things is like saying, okay, who are going to be the people that we make a partnership with? That's going to be the best thing. Um, and then I think also too, like, uh, we're always looking for good people, but it's got to be the right fit. Um, people in the bus that have not been the right fit that we thought they were. And so I think when it comes to hiring people that, you know, my dad, um, you know, my dad was a general in the air force and he used to say 80% of its personnel. And it's so true. I mean, because, you know, if you have a smaller firm, one person can shift the total dynamics. And so you have to be very protective of that. I think. That's so funny. We, we were just talking about this in, in my company and our business, how we're small, we've got 50 employees one person you could have 49 fantastic people and one culture killer and oh, the whole thing yeah. fall and the whole thing crumbles yeah absolutely. it's incredible yeah uh, speaking of that personnel uh that's always a hot topic that's obviously always a pain point what how would you define at combs and company how would you define your cult culture susan so i think if you talk to any one of my people they would say they work with me not for me and that was very very important for me um, because I always wanted people to have like buy-in and feel like they were part of this. And so I've never, you know, put myself up on a pedestal or anything like that. I, I mean, and oftentimes now, I mean, for example, my business, she handles all the decisions pretty much on the health insurance and the life insurance side now. And so you'll get people that contact and they're wanting to have meetings with me, or we go to conferences. And I'm like, look, you got to talk to her, not me. It's a very frank thing as a business owner to be able to be like, I'm done. Like, but um, you know, so I think that that's something I, I overheard people like at a networking event and they say, I work with Susan and that's when it just, it made me so happy because I was like, you know what, this is exactly how I wanted it to be. And it worked out. Oh, that's beautiful. That speaks volumes to the way that you foster those relationships, but, but the, do they feel that way about across the board? Cause there's obviously other, you have other leadership team, people that are higher up, maybe C-suite, how, whatever you guys, your titles are, um, is that kind of the way that they feel across the board about their superiors or? I think so. I mean, we're, and we're a small firm. I mean, it's just like, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, um, six people under Combs and company, and then I'm a partner of another firm. We have like 12 people there. Okay. And, um, you know, so we're, we're small. So it's just like, you know, you're talking 50, we're talking a hell of a lot smaller than that. And it's just like, that's why it's so crucial to have the right people in the bus. So, you know, when it comes to making a decision and things like that, we talk it through, we, we decide what we're going to do. Um, and you know, the, the company culture is very, very important to me. I mean, for example, um, I know we work hard and I know like to get somebody to take a vacation is like pulling teeth. <laughs> and, um, but it's, it's also important. So since I know my people don't like to be gone because they're like, oh, then I come back to so many emails and things like that, even though there's people to cover. Um, one of the things that I try to do is build that in for them. So for example, like if you work for a firm that typically has like say like we're coming up on Labor Day, right? So it's just like the Friday before Labor Day, they close at one o'clock. We're closed the entire day. Like the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, you close at one o'clock. No, we're closed the whole day. Mm -hmm. You know, Christmas and New Year's, we do two five-day blocks for each holiday so that people can have that more time with their, their friends and family during those holiday times. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, you learned a lot of this stuff, your business savviness, your interpersonal skills, 
your ability to understand emotional intelligence. It sounds like you learned a lot of that from a special someone. That special someone was your father, Roger. Yeah. Talk a little bit about him. Yeah. So my, my dad was great. I mean, and I, I know not everybody has a great father. I was very, very fortunate. And so, you know, my father in a civilian life, he was a, he was a prosecuting attorney and then he was a judge. Um, and then he was a two-star general in the air force. So he served, um, the armed forces for 39 years and four months. Um, he was a church board member he was a mentor. He was on the joint chiefs of staff for the army and air national guard. Um, he was just, he was one of those guys that was just good when nobody was watching. Um, he was in every U S branch besides the Navy, correct? Well, actually during wartime, the Marines become the part of the Navy, so, right? And in the coast guards. So he was army. He, he was Marines first because once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine. Right. And so he was Marines first because he was a Marine Corps helicopter, combat helicopter pilot in Vietnam. And then, um, he was army and then he was air force. So awesome. Okay. So he instilled in you quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, it's just you. And I, I've been blessed with so many great mentors. I mean, I've had mentors throughout, you know, throughout my life, but my dad was definitely my first mentor. And, um, and even though he's no longer here, um, you know, he still can, you know, his lessons live on and that's what I shared a lot in the book. Um, and I, what, what inspired you? What, what was the catalyst for you to sit down and actually say, all right, I am going to write this book pancakes for Roger. How did it unfold? So I, I publicly speak quite a bit. And when I end my talks, usually I ended with unsolicited advice from different mentors that I got along the way. And I always thought that would be a cool, be a cool book to give, like say one of the quotes and have that be the name of the chapter and then give some background about that person and then how you can plug and play that information. So that's how it started. My dad was not supposed to be the entire book. He was supposed to be a chapter. And then the general took over the book, like you always. <laughs> and then it's, you know, it's sprinkled in with a lot of other mentors and lessons from other people too. But uh, it was, it was very cathartic. I mean, I was one of my dad's caregivers and um, you know, it was, I think I stepped into his shoes in a lot of capacities for my family. Um, we have two farms back in Missouri where I'm originally from. And so I was dealing with the VA and with Arlington for his, his military funeral and, you know, seven properties and eight bank accounts <laughs> and consolidating a lot of that stuff. So um, I, after he passed, I really went into work mode to get a lot of that stuff done. And so doing this book was very much, you know, cathartic for me and very much a healing process. And, you know, um, I wrote every week and I ugly cried almost every week. Um, you know, we're coming up on, on the four year anniversary of his passing August 22nd. And, mm. Um, it was, you know, it's one of those things that it was a lot of people have enjoyed the book and I've gotten a lot of, you know, great feedback, but it was, you know, selfishly, it was, it was a very healing process for me. Wow. That's really powerful. It was almost like a healing process for you. It was your own, it was your own form of therapy Yeah. every day when you were writing and probably when you weren't writing, when you were sitting there thinking about what you were going to be writing. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very powerful. Um, people are saying pancakes for Roger. What the heck is all that about? What's this name about? So talk about how that came, how the name came about when you were caring for him at the uh, end of his life. So uh, the full title of the book is pancakes for Roger a mentorship guide for slaying dragons. So, um, pancakes for Roger actually became a movement that my, you know, my dad had no idea that that started. So, um, 
as he, my father was on hospice and the last year of his life, he had a feeding tube. He was also on oxygen. So for any of the listeners that are the watchers ha- that have dealt with that, know that if somebody's on a feeding tube, all their nutrition goes through the feeding tube. And if you're dealing with somebody on oxygen, if their oxygen levels get too low, then you can have some confusion. Um, so my, I moved um, from New York back to Missouri uh, for the, basically the summer to help care for him. And my dad and I were always the type A in the family. I'd get up at 5 a.m. I'd check on him. If he was good, I'd go to the gym, come back, check on him again. If he was good, I'd go get ready for the day. And then come down and help him get ready, you know, doing his feeding tube formula. And then I'm set in the chair. And I would just work at the coffee table at my parents' home for the rest of the day. And so one morning I, um, I showered and I was went to his hospital bed because we were fortunate enough through a wonderful long-term care policy that we were able to have hospice at home for him. And um, when I went to his hospital bed, he wasn't there. And so I went into the kitchen and he had a placemat. He was setting the table and I looked at him and I said, dad, what are you doing? And he said, well, I want pancakes for breakfast. And I looked at him and it just broke my heart. I said, oh, dad, I'm like, there's nothing in this world that I'd want to give you more than pancakes for breakfast. But I said, we have a feeding tube. You're in hospice. We have a DNR. If you choke here, we're done. And I just don't think we're quite ready to be done here. And of course he said, oh, yes, I can. Matt said I could. And Matt um, is my brother. He's a nurse. And he wasn't there that morning. So I knew we were dealing with some confusion for low oxygen levels. So I looked at my dad and I said, well, let me see what I can do. So I took his feeding tube formula over the microwave and heated it up for 14 seconds because the general never wanted 13. He never wanted 15. He always wanted 14 um, seconds on the heat up. And I put it down on the table and I said, what's that? And I said, well, there's your syrup. And so his oxygen levels kind of started rallying around and he kind of smiled at me and nodded and he said, okay. So about, I don't even know, two, three weeks later, he passed away. Mm. I took one day off work when I came back to New York and my husband said to me, he said, why don't we just go have some pancakes for your dad and go have some pancakes for Roger. So that's where the first picture was taken um, at my fellow diner in Queens. And I told the story and I said, if you're so inclined, why don't you just go have some pancakes for Roger and remind, remind yourself of the little things in life that you're, you appreciate because those can change in a blink of an eye. So I always tell people just to be, you know, thankful for those things. So that's kind of how the concept of pancakes for Roger started. And then people started having pancakes all the time and posting pictures on social media. And I would get text messages and pictures and they said, Oh, I can't have pancakes now. And just think of your dad. And so say that again, they can't have pancakes. You cut out. I'm sorry. They said that they couldn't have pancakes anymore and not think about my dad. So then what we started doing is the month of February, because his birthday was February 22nd. We told people for every pancake loving picture we got on social media, um, when they use the hashtag pancakes for Roger, then we would make a donation. My company would make a donation to the University of Missouri Law School Veterans Clinic that provides free legal services to veterans and their families navigating the VA claim appeals process. So um, that's how it kind of started. And then it just kind of blossomed from there. I mean, this past February, the book came out on his birthday. So it was 2 this year. So that's kind of cool. And then uh, we got all 50 states, we got 18 countries, um, and we just loaded up the pancake map and made you know a nice donation to the Veterans Clinic. And it's just been a lot of fun. That's too. awesome. Guys, if you're listening, you've got some pancake mix nearby, you're at the diner, you even maybe eating pancakes while you're listening right now, take a picture, use hashtag pancakes for Roger. Yeah. And uh, that will impact a lot of people's lives, Susan's included. 
Um, give us just a, a little teaser. We'll link the show. We'll link the book in the show notes. But but give us a little teaser. I know you have different chapters, yeah. different lessons that people can employ into their everyday lives. What's one that sticks out to you? That's maybe something that, regardless of where you are, what your situation is, that you can use that tip and trick and advice that you give and employ it in your own lives. What would be one? So the book's divided in four sections. So self-love, family, and career. Um, so it's written kind of as a vignette. So um, I think the longest chapter is about 10 pages. You might have a, pa- a chapter that's a, a paragraph or two. Um, so probably one of the most impactful lessons that my father taught me is it's important for you to be understood, but it's more important for you not to be misunderstood. So this has been something that, I mean, I use a lot with my expert witness work, but just to use so much time and time again, because I think a lot of times, especially if you're early in your career and you're early in sales, you might be trying to put on, you know, put on airs, as we say in Missouri and using these big words and trying to make yourself, you know, feel more important or, or have people think that you're smart. But at the end of the day, if somebody doesn't understand the words that you're using, then what impact are you really making? So um, with my expert witness stuff, I've used that so much because I put things in more layman's terms so people can understand them. So, you know, my aunt used to tell me like, why use a $10 word when you can use a nickel one? So same type of concept. Mm. Okay. So that's a big lesson for you and that anyone can employ is it's better to be, uh, it's better to be, um, I'll say it again. with the mystery. It, It's more, so it's, uh, it's important to be understood, but it's important. more for you not to be misunderstood it's more important for you to yeah because and in today's society it's so easy to get confused it's so easy for communication a lot of people are poor communicators i mean let's call it what it is so either the person that's delivering the message is giving it in a muddy kind of way or a complex kind of way to your example and then on the flip side of things people don't listen very well anyways so you could be giving it in a very nice articulate manner and that person still walks away hearing something totally different than yeah. what you just said. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's just like, you know, I mean, sometimes even with email communication, I mean, sometimes I send back an email and says TLTR, too long to read. I mean, it's like it's getting get to the point. I mean, and it's it's one of the funny things that I've seen is like in the United States, it's all about the like the quick, right? How can you be more concise, bullet point it, make it bottom line it, quick communication, especially when you look at US websites. When you look at foreign websites, um, we do a lot of work with Netherlands. They put so many words on the page and you can read through all of them and you still know what the hell they're doing. So mm. tell people like you really need to be concise as possible because it just makes things a lot easier. That's beautiful. Well, this is really insightful stuff. Uh, I'm glad we had a chance to connect and um, we will link your, your website, pancakesforroger.com. We will link the book uh, in the show notes, guys, if you want to check it out, just click the links in the show notes. But uh, Susan, anywhere else you want people to find you online, social media, et cetera. I mean, they're welcome to find me on social media. I, we kind of have a lot of fun with Instagram and that's at Combs and Company um, is where you can find us. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, so I will say like, if it's a business thing, it's LinkedIn. If you don't say, hey, I heard you on, you know, the Optimal Life podcast, then I'm probably not going <laughs> to accept your invite. Um, but, you know, I always tell people too, like with the social media, um, we do a video um, on a chapter of the book every single week. So if you feel like you don't have time to read through a book right now, if you just go on uh, social media and you just watch the videos, you'll eventually get to the end of the book. That's that's fantastic. Hey, my last question for you. 
is life kind of back to normal in New York? What's what's it all about these? Oh, days? I think it's very much back to normal. I mean, but I will tell you. Um, so my office, we all had COVID early on, like the the first month of 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 everything, and we were shut down real hard in in New York City. And um, but we're classified as essential workers. So the 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 June after the shutdown, they allowed us to go back to work. And so I told my staff because at the end of the day, I couldn't fight fear. And I said, if you want to come back in, you can come back in. And everybody's like, oh my God, yes. So so we've been back in the office. So we've really seen a transition in New York City. We were the only company in our office building for God, like six, nine months. Wow. And you know, January 1st, there were a few people. Um, and then we were the only company on our floor for like probably over a year. And then now it seems like there's a lot more people. I mean, I will say it does seem the larger the company, the slower they are. Um yes. to- back because I still have a, a lot of friends and colleagues that are working for very large companies and they're still not back in the office. Um, well, Price, I think it was Price Waterhouse Cooper came out and said everyone can work from home in perpetuity. Well, and at the end of the day, I mean, it's just like you have companies that their leases were coming up for renewal. So, you know, one of my girlfriends that works for the company that I used to work for before I started my own firm, they said, hey, we're changing, we're moving to a different location. You need to decide, do you want to be 100% remote or do you want to have a place in the office? So we've seen people like kind of shrink their footprints. But I will say, I mean, I take the subway to work and um, half the time I don't have a seat anymore. I had a seat a lot, a lot of time during COVID. So mm-hmm. I think for the most part, like, you know, people always ask about masking and things like that. The only places that masks are required now in New York City is still in public transportation, uh, but not everybody abides by that. Um, and then it's at the discretion of of the business owner. But I would say for the most part, I think some restaurants are still kind of having a, a tough time and, you know, some retail. But in terms of like things being back open in New York, I mean, there's a hell of a lot of tourists here right now in August in New York City. <laughs> That's, for sure. That's great. That's great. Living in fear does does no good for anybody. Absolutely not. That's my opinion. Hey, uh, continued success to you, Susan. Thank you so much for the insightful conversation. Thanks so much, Nate. I appreciate it.